along comes Leibniz and says, no, actually, you know the capital of Finland and the gestation period of giraffes a priori too, <laughs> right? Um, you know absolutely everything a priori. Hello, the internet. You are listening to Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. This is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big, important things. I'm Luke T. Harrington, award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, and also award-winning contractor of COVID-19. Took me longer than I expected. (laughs) I thought I might be one of the early, early patients um, because that would be just my luck, Uh, especially back in the beginning when we thought asthma was a comorbidity. Apparently it's not, Um, but back when we thought it was uh, and I realized, hey, I have asthma, I was almost positive I would end up in a hospital in a coma at some point. It didn't happen, uh, which I'm quite grateful for. Uh, Presumably what I got was the Omicron variant, which I understand to be much more contagious, but also less serious, uh, less life-threatening. I don't know how good the data on that is, but uh, that does seem to be the popular consensus, at least. Um, Anyway, and I'm also, you know, triple vaxxed, as the kids say, so it wasn't a serious case. It was like a bad cold with quite a bit of intestinal distress. I'm sure that's what you wanted to know. Um, I'm sure you wanted all those details. I can give you more details if you email me at changemymindpod at Um, (laughs) gmail.com. I'm guessing nobody will take me up on that offer, uh, but it is on the table. Um, So anyway, um, for this week's episode, I have a really interesting conversation uh, for you with philosophy professor Justin E.H. Smith. Um, he teaches philosophy at the University of Paris um, and is the author of the book Irrationality and several other books. Um, and we had a really fascinating conversation with him. My producer, Blake, originally reached out to him uh, months ago uh, to invite him on the show because it seemed like he had some interesting thoughts on how the mind works. And Blake says to him, you know, we talk to people who have changed their minds about things. Uh, What have you changed your mind about? We'd love to talk to you about whatever you've changed your mind about. And Justin comes back with, well, I'm actually a Leibnizian, so I don't think it's even possible to change your mind. I think we know everything a priori, which to me was one of the most buck wild things I'd ever heard. And I was like, we need to get this weirdo on the show. Um, so I had a really fascinating conversation with Justin. He was an absolute delight to talk to. Um, obviously much more intelligent than I am, but never made me feel dumb. The whole conversation uh, kind of just put up with my layman's thoughts on philosophy, which is exactly what we like to do here. We like to flatter the host. No, um, no, for real though, Justin was great. It, it was a really fascinating conversation. I will go ahead and let Justin introduce himself and I will see you on the other side. Justin, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me. 
Justin, of course, is a professor of history and the philosophy of science at the University of Paris, number seven, Paris University seven, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Paris has a, they have a numbered system of universities. Well, <laughs> I wasn't going to correct you, but it's actually even more complicated than that. They abolished okay. the numbers two years ago. Oh, there it is. <laughs> and now it's just University of Paris. Right on, right on. <laughs> um, also the author of several books, including most recently, Irrationality, A History of the Dark Side of Reason. Obviously, what he does uh, figures kind of directly into what we do here on the show. Um, really glad to have him on. Always nice to talk to an expert. What am I leaving out? Anything else that you do? <laughs> uh, I might want to mention my next book coming up, also from Princeton University Press, uh, appearing in February. Uh, so this winter, it's called The Internet is Not What You Think It Is. Um, oh, right on. Right and on. it develops some themes that are there in irrationality and uh, that were kind of hinted at, but it takes on more directly the question of the distorting effect that new technologies have on the use of the faculty of reason. So, for sure. Uh, yeah, you had a- and more develops more the themes of conspiracy theory and disinformation and uh, overabundance of information and all that good stuff. Oh, another thing. I myself have a podcast. It's a new podcast um, and it hasn't been around as long as yours, but it's worth uh, pitching or uh, giving a shout out to it here. It's called What is X? uh, And it's hosted by The Point magazine. Every episode I have on a guest and we pursue Socratically questions of the form, what is X, usually at a very high degree of generality of the sort, (laughs) what is poetry, what is music, what is mental health, what is justice, things like that. Only two two episodes have come out so far, so we're really just getting started, but it's going to be cool. Can we actually start there? Because... I have something I've been dying to ask you or at least ask someone. And I I feel like I'm, you know, ascending the mountain to the guru here because this is a really dumb question, I think. But I've been I've been struggling with this question ever since. Well, really, before I started the podcast and the podcast has only made me more confused about it, which I think is typically how things go when you spend a lot of time thinking about philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um, But is there a succinct definition of rationality versus irrationality? Uh, Well, (laughs) what I tried to argue in the book, and I think I stand by this, there are some points in the book that I think I don't actually uh, stand by anymore, or I don't think I even stood by them then either, (laughs) which is to say I didn't change my mind, but we'll get to that. I thought I stood by them, but I was wrong. Uh, But one that I will stand by is this is this basic uh, line that I pushed throughout the book that rationality and its opposite irrationality are always only at best contextually meaningful notions, right. and that a person can be uh, 
clinically or can be shown to be clinically insane uh, because they are so preoccupied with the fact that two plus two equals four. Hmm. Now, two plus two does equal four. And in many situations, it's an expression of reason to point that out, in particular against people who are saying two plus two equals five. But under certain circumstances, the insistence on the point is not a healthy sign of a good use of the faculty of reason, right? So that is to say that um, that that overcommitment to anything or commitment to anything beyond its possible utility or power to edify or clarify is a form of unreason, even if it's, again, perfectly true, even if it's a paradigmatic expression of rational knowledge of the sort that we take mathematics to be, right? That's why right. I chose the two plus two equals four example. For sure. Yeah, I mean, the subtitle of the book, of course, is a history of the dark side of reason, um, mm. which I do appreciate that, that you seem to treat rationality and irrationality as kind of two sides of the same coin. Like, yeah, it's, I, mean, <laughs> I suppose it's, I, I didn't use the word very frequently in the book, but it's undeniably a sort of dialectical approach, dialectical in the sense that we get from Hegel and Marx, which is mm -hmm. something like the view that each, each concept trails along with it, its opposite. Uh, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that you're never going to get the one without the other, that you're going to have to deal with both, whether or not the two can resolve in some higher order sublation or not. And I'm not sure that rationality and irrationality do resolve in that way. Uh, but I know that you're going to have to you're going to have to deal with them together. I tend to be a bit of a a bit of a human <laughs> when it comes to this stuff, like, you know, reason is the slave of the passions or whatever, mm -hmm. like reason can get us from point A to point B, but at some point we have to say, okay, which point B are we getting to? Right. Which is almost always, almost always ends up being an emotionally driven question. Right. Right. Um, right, right or at least right. it reduces to one eventually, if you keep going back a step. Um, sure. Sure. Yeah. Hume is really good on, on, on this. And of course, I mean, we have the model of the individual rational agent, which is helpful in limited contexts in economics and rational choice theory. Right. Uh, and that agent is someone who maximizes their goods. Uh, uh, and, you know, typically you can try to measure um, rational commitment by determining how much someone is willing to bet on a given course of action, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, that presupposes quite a bit about the individual uh, who's being asked to bet. For one thing, it presupposes they don't think betting is a sin or that money <laughs> is too dirty for them to deal with and other things that, uh, that, that are outside of the scope of economic and rational choice modeling. So again, it's a, it's a useful model, but only in a very limited context. And in the full 
context of human life, it's a lot harder to pin down um, what, uh, what, what you're going to allow to count as, as rational. Yeah. Well, and it, it presupposes, well, and you, you touched on this, but it presupposes what the individual would consider good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, it's probably true the average person would like more, more money, more goods and services, but mm-hmm. at some point you have to deal with the existence of monks or right. you know, hermits, you know, people, people that have um, sworn off worldly goods or whatever. Right, right. That's, um, that's a good example. I think, I think I discuss it. Yeah. The, if you're a Franciscan and you, mm-hmm. and you uh, absolutely uh, despise money, um, except, you know, uh, uh, enough to get you through to the next day, then if a researcher comes and asks you to maximize your uh, your outcomes in an in a kind of thought thought experiment that is rendered in economic terms, then obviously you're going to look at look at that person in a in a very perplexed way, right? And you're not going to be able to do the experiment. And of course, one approach is well, we just need better experimental. Uh, subjects. This this mm-hmm. person isn't right for the experiment, but mm-hmm. you know maybe that would be an, an adequate response if you were uh, testing for something very narrow. But the problem is that rationality is supposed to be universal. We're supposed mm-hmm. to have reason qua human beings, or simply insofar as we are human beings, um, and that means that you're if, if you're excluding people from your experiments on reason because their values are different, uh, then that, that, that difference of values could also be a problem for your understanding of what reason itself is. I think in the conclusion of the book, you mentioned during the course of writing, I, I think you say you gave up smoking. Is that right? No, no, no. I, no. I gave up drinking. Yeah. Drinking. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I mentioned I mention Richard Klein, I think, who wrote a mm-hmm. wonderful book called Cigarettes Are Sublime. Okay, um, yeah, that's probably and, what I uh, that came out in the 90s, I think. Uh, and he was a he's I think he is a, a scholar of French literature uh, and had been a chain smoker for his his the, the bulk of his career. And he wrote a beautiful kind of eloge to smoking. As it's represented in French literature and cinema, um, and this helped him to uh, to overcome smoking and to quit smoking in a way that um, uh, no amount of argumentation ever could look at. Kind of you can't look a cigarette square in the eye, but let's <laughs> look smoking in the face and really think about why we love it. Um, yeah. And all of the ways in which it doesn't fit with certain aspects of who we also think we are, and mm-hmm. that's the that's the, the 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 sublime character of it. Because you know, in Kant's theory of the sublime, the sublime is something that is, so to speak, beyond beautiful, compelling, precisely because you know it can kill you, right? Whereas a flower <laughs> is just, is just nice, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, an alpine cliff or the ocean is sublime because using the same adjective for it that you would use for a flower doesn't seem to quite work. And what's different is precisely 
the power the thing you're beholding aesthetically has to utterly annihilate you. So he mm. puts he puts smoking in in that realm, and when you're engaging in that realm, I think much more obviously than when you're engaging with the beautiful, um, you really kind of have to face up to the fact that, yeah, we also kind of like things that kill us right? <laughs> and, and that's a real problem if yeah. um, if if you're modeling if you're modeling the human being as a as a as a as a individual good maximizing strategizer mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. yeah well and that's what i i keep coming back to is like the quit smoking quit drinking thing like most i, I think most people if you ask them would agree quitting smoking or quitting drinking is the rational thing to do. Mm. Um, but again, I keep coming back to, but it really depends on what your priorities are, mm. right? Like if, if my point B, if my goal is I want to maximize my long-term health or the length of my life, yes, I ought to quit smoking. Right. Yeah. But if my, if my point B is something like I want to maximize my pleasure in the moment, you yeah. know, then I ought yeah. to smoke like a chimney. Right. Um, yeah. You know, there's this great line from uh, John Maynard Keynes, the economist, whom I, I quote in the book, uh, in the long run, we'll all be dead. Uh, and <laughs> I, you know, he was he said that he made that was a point he made in connection with the kind of long term returns on investments or something like that you you can only calculate so far right. into the future but it's also i think and one of the things i thematize in the book it's also um something that uh really is kind of the big monkey wrench that that is always landing in the machinery of rationality right mm -hmm. mortality makes an absolute mess of um <laughs> of rational constructs just obviously it does and the interesting thing about the positive sciences in contrast with certain strands of 20th century philosophy is that it models human beings for the most part as if death were not an issue, right? Mm, I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes, yes, lifespans are factored in, but it doesn't, so to speak, confront death. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't, uh, it doesn't really do everything you would have to do in order to, so to speak, model our being towards death, right? Mm -hmm. And once you do that, then obviously the expected utility or the eventual payoff of the, of the benefit maximizing action is very different when you take into consideration the fact that, that can only go on for so long. And so you have cases like the, you know, I think the most kind of uh, vivid locus classicus representation of this is Clint Eastwood's Gran Torino. What is going to be the benefit of this old man just continuing to, to drink his beers on his porch for mm -hmm. a few more years? Obviously, the best thing for him to do is to give his life for another person, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, a, in some ways, a calculation of how much more he could get out of life in contrast with the, the girl he's so nobly and chivalrously saving. 
it's you know it's also kind of a taking taking a taking stock of what a mortal life actually is in a way that that confounds any purely rational calculus it's a schlocky movie but it's just it's just <laughs> a, a perfect representation of of the issue at hand I'll ha I, I have to watch it at some point. I mean, it's one of those ones that's it's been around yeah. more than 10 years now and people still talk yeah. about it. So I guess it's probably worth seeing. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> if I could poke at this one more time before we uh, move on to other things, you write a bit about religion in the book. You hmm. quote, you quote St. Paul quite a bit. I'm wondering what you would make of like, since we're talking about death is inevitable. And I don't, I don't think you touch on this book. I'm wondering what you make of stuff like Pascal's wager, you know, mm. stuff like if we're going to die, then the truly rational thing to do would be to bet on even a slight chance of eternity. You know what I mean? Yeah. Ross Douthat has been writing interesting stuff recently on Pascal's oh, wager. Douthat has a really good way of summarizing what, what's at stake in Pascal's wager. But and it's he touches on this in this recent um this recent piece of his uh on whether Christianity is rational or not mm -hmm. that was in the Times. And I I think, you know, he's he's the best, the best voice out there for the public discussion of these big questions in the English language right now. I think, I think that's clear. Now, I think that the problem he picks up on is also a problem for Descartes' argument for the existence of God and a lot of other early modern, what Jean-Luc Marion would call ontotheology, uh, mm -hmm. that is um, conceiving the urgent task of theological investigation as one of establishing the existence of God qua entity, that is to say, mm -hmm. as a being that exists in the same manner that you and I and perhaps Bigfoot do, right? <laughs> Whereas yeah. there are other traditions in theology that take it uh, for granted that God is somehow beyond being and right. commitment to God doesn't involve the same kind of doxastic state or the same kind of... Um, the same kind of belief commitment that mm -hmm. you would have to say Bigfoot, right? Like right. you say, okay, I saw the footprint, I saw a big orange clump of hair on the side of a tree. Uh, and you know, the more I see this stuff, the more I'm convinced there's an ape man walking out around <laughs> out there, right? right? That's that's how you come to believe in Bigfoot, right? Mm -hmm. I think you know, there's a pretty compelling line of thought that says that you just shouldn't think about God in that way, right? Mm -hmm. If you commit to God, it's not because it's not because you've become convinced by parallel sorts of argument or evidence. Now, apart from that problem, that I think, say, Descartes' arguments for the existence of God have. And Pascal's wager doesn't because Pascal's wager isn't an argument for the mm -hmm. existence of God. Problem with that Pascal's wager does share with arguments for the existence of God is that it seems pretty 
non-specific as regards sectarian direction you should right. know it, right? right and uh, not just you know should i be uh, uh an episcopalian or or an orthodox but you know should i be a muslim or a christian right there's yeah. there's nothing there's nothing that these can get you beyond oh i better believe in something and mm-hmm. um and it seems particularly egregious as a kind of shortfall of what's actually being sought in the case of Pascal, where the the argument is, just start doing this and you'll believe in it. And if it turns out to be true, it's going to save you infinite, infinite torture. But that would be true of my uh, adopting Islam as well, Mm -hmm. right? It would be, Mm -hmm. it would be true of any belief system that promises punishment for not adopting it, right? It would be true of Rocco's basilisk, if you know about that <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. thought experiment, right? And so, and that obviously the Rocco's basilisk is the 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 tech world's modern day update of, <laughs> of Pascal's wager. I'm, I'm convinced of that. So it just doesn't give you enough enough to go on. And one more thing is that I think I don't agree with Kant about many things, let alone this, but it does <laughs> seem reasonable to complain that faith taken up out of fear of punishment is pretty pretty lame. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's pretty childish. That, that's, yeah. that's the word for it. And so the whole kind of Kantian project of making religion into something that flows from the internal sense of duty seems to me a lot more promising than making religion something that you indoctrinate yourself into Mm -hmm. because of the rationally grounded fear of the very slight chance of infinite punishment. Um, It's it's all very complicated, but just to say that I have my misgivings about Pascal's wager. But on the other hand, on the other hand, it does seem to me pretty much true that that in a kind of anthropological sense, that one way of getting yourself to believe in something is to just go through the motion. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. maybe that's, you know, that that brings us closer to the theme of your of your show. I don't necessarily believe in the mission, like believe strongly, like deep in my soul, in the mission of a lot of collaborative research projects I've been involved in, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, getting a grant and you have to come up with all this new rhetoric to apply for the grant. And, you know, but I've found that if I don't believe in it, then one of the ways I can make it less painful for myself to be doing this thing I don't believe in is to just get into it, right? And <laughs> just to start, you know, start um, uh, conducting myself as if it mattered to me. And then you know, eventually it kind of does, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, so in that sense, Pascal's wager is, is kind of compelling in the sense that, you know, maybe going through the motions is really often all, all, all you need. 
Well, and Plato took the same approach to virtue, right? Mm-hmm. Start going through the motions of being a virtuous person, and yeah. eventually you'll develop these virtues. Right, right, right. Yeah, and which that, I think I mean, is that, yeah, generally that, solid that, advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it it seems to be more or less true in in my experience. Yeah, <laughs> the name of the show is changed my mind, um, and the idea in general is that I bring people on and talk to them about something they've changed their minds about. My um, my producer, Blake, reached out to you and you sent the following email. He says that you say the problem for me is that when I think about it, I don't really find any examples of ever having changed my mind about anything. I'm a Leibnizian, and that means that I think we all know everything a priori, um, which is fascinating. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I like said that this. in a pretty extreme way, yeah. but I can... <laughs> I, I, I think I stand by it and I can try to justify it. <laughs> I'm going to be real honest. I am familiar with Leibniz uh, mainly as a mathematician. I know yeah. very little about his philosophy. So you might have to educate me a little bit here. Yeah. So why don't we start here? What does that mean to know everything a priori? Like, Well, let me. OK, so here's an example. <laughs> uh, you can see me. The listeners can't. But if, if you could see me you, and you can confirm this, I've got a black eye, right? Yeah, um, I was can you wondering see that? about that. Yep. I yeah, can. <laughs> I've got a terrible black eye and I've got stitches over my forehead. So uh, you ask me, have you changed your mind about anything ever? Now, there's a sense in which I could say, yes, don't ride an electric scooter without a helmet. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Is that where that came I, from? I learned, <laughs> oh, I learned no. my lesson a week ago. I should have been wearing a helmet. I grant that. Right. Um, Now, have I changed my mind? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that the next time I ride a scooter, I'm going to wear a helmet and it won't be after it's rained and the street is wet, etc. But have I really changed my mind? No, I Hmm. knew that before I hit my head a week ago, you know, I, I, I knew it perfectly well. Um, and, and so, and so hitting your head and changing your mind in scare quotes is really just um, kind of acknowledging something that you were already committed to before. And I tend to believe, again, with Leibniz, and we can talk about this some more, I tend to believe with Leibniz that absolutely everything is like that. Now, that's an extreme statement because wear a helmet when you ride a scooter is just good common sense. Um, On the contrary, by contrast, uh, I don't know. Give me something that I might have changed my mind about on, in a certain res- respect. I, let me think. Well, my tastes change too. This is now. This is something. My tastes change. Uh, uh, when I was a teenager, I listened to one kind of music that I find dull and repetitive. Now, <laughs> now I listen to a lot of early American folk music, which I found utterly dull and repetitive then, or not repetitive, <laughs> just dull and, and dorky. Right. Yeah. Um, and so tastes change. Yeah. I've, and there, what you could say is I've changed my mind. Right. But 
this is something unlike the wearing a helmet question, where it's not like I used to think something was uh, true, and now I think something incompatible with that truth is true. Mm -hmm. um, it's more like something inside me has shifted and mm -hmm. I notice and am sensitive to other things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And this is also, I think, you know, one thing that another candidate for mind changing is when I was younger, I used to kind of deep down kind of despise older people you know, like, <laughs> like, look, I'd look at them and just think, what's that guy's problem? Why is he so old? Right? Well, he probably has many problems being old. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and I think that's, that's a kind of expression of the arrogance of youth. That's mm -hmm. kind of common. Maybe not, it's not all youth who feel that, but it, you know, <laughs> I've seen it attested elsewhere and I just don't feel it anymore. Now I look at an old person and I'm, I'm basically like, yeah. That's that's a fellow human being just like me. And I feel it, right? I feel, I feel that. And so there it's again just something shifting inside of me where I notice, I notice something that I didn't notice before. But mm. if you are uh Leibnizian in this very broad sense. What that noticing is, is becoming attuned to something you were already kind of pre-stocked with, something mm -hmm. that was already part of your, your whole mental makeup and mm -hmm. that you just couldn't see because you were distracted by your passions or you turned away. And I think this is why the thing about young, the arrogance of youth is important, right? When you're a young person and you, you despise old people, you are an arrogant youth in the sense that your youthful passions are clouding your ability to see what your real predicament is, which is that mm -hmm. you're a human being like that old guy, right? Like you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're part of the same part of the same, um, the same plight, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so similarly, then, uh, it might look different if we're talking about changes in, say, our, I don't know, voting behavior. Mm -hmm. um, I used to, I used to think, um, I used to think ecology wasn't very important as a political issue. And now mm -hmm. I think it's really important, but even there again, it's kind of just like, you know, uh, becoming more attuned to things that were always true. Mm -hmm. And again, if you're a Leibnizian, it's like, because they're, they were always true. You always were pre-stocked with the, mental apparatus to recognize that truth, right? Hmm. You just didn't because you were distracted. 
Hello, thank you so much for listening to Changed My Mind. I will get right back to that conversation you were just listening to. Uh, But before we do that, I wanna talk real quick about the Patreon. We are a listener-supported show. The donations are what keep the lights on. They help me pay my editor and my executive producer. And they are what keep this sort of thoughtful conversation online for listeners to hear. Um, If you go to patreon.com slash change my mind, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash change my mind, you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. Once you start supporting at $3 or more, benefits start kicking in. You'll get early access to episodes. And if you support at $5, or more, you will become a producer for the show, uh, which basically means that I'm gonna shout you out at the end of every episode. And also you can come to our strategy meetings on Zoom every month if you want. You um, don't have to talk if you don't want to, you can just be a fly on the wall and see how the magic happens uh, or see how the sausage is made as the case may be. Um, So if you like this show and you like what I'm doing, please consider going online to patreon.com slash change my mind and becoming a supporter. Thanks again to all our listeners and supporters. I really appreciate you. And I will flip you right back over to that conversation you were just listening to. I'm trying to connect the dots here between you always had the capacity to know this, or you always had the ability to know this with um, the, with the way you put it in your email, it's maybe you were being, being facetious, but you said, we know everything a priori. And you know, I, I, I hear you have the capacity to know this and I say, sure, sounds good. But then yeah. you say, you've always known this. And I'm like, uh, have I? Okay. Here's like a, I'll try to condense the Leibniz lecture to, under three minutes, but basically <laughs> we know that Plato was a rationalist, right? Mm-hmm. In the sense that he thought that what is ordinarily called learning is in fact just recollection or anamnesis, right? So you think you're learning the Pythagorean theorem. What's actually happening is you're having drawn out of you truths that are already there. And you got those for Plato before your birth when you were in direct communion with the eternal unchanging forms. Now, with Plato, that's true of the Pythagorean theorem, and it's also true, presumably, of moral truths and aesthetic truths about the beautiful and so on. But for Plato, it wouldn't be true of, say, scientific truths, right? Fine-grained things like the, the, the gestation period of giraffes or something like sure. that, right? Sure. Let alone of particular empirical truths, right? Like that Helsinki is the capital of Finland or something like that. Um, and the reason why those are excluded for Plato is because, well, you don't actually know those things anyway. No one knows that Helsinki is the capital of Finland. The belief that Helsinki is the capital of Finland is, for Plato, an opinion, right? The, mm-hmm. Translating the Greek word doxa. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And if the president of Finland comes and says, no, no, it really is Helsinki. I know this. I, could, I, can, I can prove it. <laughs> like no amount of proof would matter for Plato. Plato would just be like, that doesn't count. That's not the kind of truth that is at the level of what ought to count as knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. It's because mm-hmm. it doesn't, <laughs> it could be different, right? It, yeah. it could be, it could be Turku. It could be, uh, you know, anything else. Finland could not exist and the rational order of things would still be the same. That's Plato's view. Along comes Leibniz and says, no, actually, you know, the capital of Finland and the gestation period of giraffes a priori too, <laughs> right? Um, you know, absolutely everything a priori in the way that Plato already acknowledged, you know, the Pythagorean theorem. And the reason for that is because Leibniz thinks that God created this world under rational constraints, right? Such Mm -hmm. that this world is the maximization of the of of the variety of different things that could coexist and you can in a sense or you, you i shouldn't say you can i i should say you could derive the variety of this world and all of the particular empirical facts of it in the same way you derive Pythagorean's theorem, the Pythagorean theorem in a deductive proof, right? You could do that, but you can't actually do it. And the reason why you can't actually do it is because it would take infinitely many steps, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so for Leibniz, then, uh, particular empirical truths, like my height or the number of hairs I have on my head or something, are deductive truths, but the deductive proof that it would require to get that conclusion is infinitely long, right? Mm -hmm. And so we experience these as if they were not deductively true, as if they were not um, necessary, but God experiences them differently. So that's Leibniz's view. And then on this view, then, when you say, count the number of hairs on your head or something like that, and you come to learn something you didn't know before. And you can kind of interpret it two ways. You can go the the more platonic route and say, yeah, but that's too trivial to count as knowledge anyway. Um, Or you can say, um, yeah, I already kind of knew that, but only very dimly. And I just had to have it brought to my attention through the act of counting. And like, that sounds totally insane. It sounds like Leibniz was on drugs. It sounds like I'm on drugs right now. But the more you think about it, the more it, the more our experiences of learning or of changing our mind actually do sometimes kind of have that character, right? Of being like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm actually committed to this. And now that I have it spelled out for me or counted out for me, I see it, right? Mm. That's the idea. Mm. I, but I, I should say, I mean, I'm not on drugs. I'm, I'm, I'm like 30% facetious though, right? Because, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but only 30% because I, I mean, I, I also, um, you know, uh, uh, I, the, I, I, 
the facetious part is I understand the ordinary way of speaking. And I, and I, in, on most occasions, I'm able to speak in that ordinary way too. Right? So that's Leibniz for you. And he's, he's really a great philosopher under undervalued. Um, uh, I think for his um, contributions to um theory of knowledge and theory of rationality always mm-hmm. always appreciated always lauded um but um but but i think you know there are very few people who would come come right out like i did and say i'm a Leibnizian. <laughs> <laughs> so does that mean that everyone i've interviewed so far on this podcast and this is I want to say this is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of the 50th episode. Uh (laughs) So I've interviewed something like 50 people up to this point. They all tell me they've changed their mind about something. Are they all wrong? Well, no, again, it's, (laughs) it's more, it's more just a matter of, of moving between these levels because, you know, uh, again, um, I changed my mind on whether you should wear a helmet when you're riding a scooter, uh, uh, I've changed my mind on how important ecology is as a political issue. I've changed my mind on what counts as good music. So, you know, again, uh, uh, in all of these senses, I've, yes, I've changed my mind. Um, but, <laughs> but in this other, I think, philosophically interesting sense that I, that I want to push. Um, um, I, I mean, the thing is, I like, uh, I like this this line of thinking because it gives us um, it gives us more credit, right? As mm-hmm. um, as as knowers mm. than we ordinarily allow ourselves, um, and it's an incredibly um, it's an incredibly incredibly optimistic assessment of what of what the human mind is capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it gives an account of why often it doesn't feel that way that we, <laughs> you know, so, so the idea is that we're in a sense, dimly omniscient, we're omniscient, mm. but it's just that, just that we have trouble seeing that most of the time. And, you know, I, I think, um, I think that's a healthy counterbalance to skepticism um, mm-hmm. in a sense, it's, it's exactly the opposite. Skepticism <laughs> says, I don't know anything. This view says I know absolutely everything. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I think both are valuable as kind of the poles between which we're, we're, we're balanced. Right. Mm-hmm. But no, yeah, I, a- I, I don't think, I don't think your other guests, uh, your other guests are wrong. <laughs> I just think it's a, it's an interesting philosophical approach. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I do appreciate that because I, in my heart of hearts, I'm probably the world, one of the world's biggest cynics, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially reading your book and seeing all these examples of people behaving irrationally, I'm like, gosh, people are morons. We're all morons. How can we know anything? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the thought that, you know, knowledge is something that is there and we are uncovering is helpful in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, one thing, uh, one argument in favor of this is that it, I mean, it's a kind of a philosophical variation on the, um, the, um, 
the I am human and nothing human is foreign to me line that um, uh, goes directly against the at least some of the implications of what's today called standpoint epistemology um, that in a in a popularized form has now filtered out through social media and through the culture in a way that I think is very dangerous, um, uh, where the idea is that everyone just um, kind of uh, uh, dutifully declares uh, at their first encounter with someone who has different lived experience than they do, uh, that they could not possibly know what it's like to be that other person. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that seems to me grossly exaggerated. <laughs> um, um, I mean, I can't know what exactly what it's like to be exactly that other person, say someone who was raised in a Brazilian favela or something like that. Um, but, you know, that person and I are both bipedal. We both, you know, breathe through our noses and you know <laughs> there's a lot of other stuff going on that is um that is is shared in common and we also have the same brain right we have we've evolved the same brain and that's such a significant fact about human beings that um that seems utterly dismissed in most contemporary discussion so to me the Leibnizian model of dim omniscience is part of a strategy uh, for uh, pushing back a bit mm -hmm. against um, standpoint epistemology run rampant. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it has its virtue. Standpoint epistemology is, you know, true to a point. Uh, right. It's just, it's just that it's been adopted as a kind of dogma in our contemporary culture and um, there are dangerous effects of it. I ask everyone this question. I don't know how it applies in this conversation, but I'm going to ask it anyway, sure. um, which is aside from your new beliefs themselves, what did you learn from the experience of changing your mind? <laughs> and I don't know how you want to apply that, but. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, I mean, um, I think the examples I've already given are, are pretty, um, are pretty revealing, right? Like, uh, I mean, like, uh, now, okay, so I've lived in France for eight years, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and this is part of, you know, my listening almost exclusively these days to Americana music, um, mm -hmm. folk roots stuff that I thought was just like utterly, utterly. <laughs> dorky when I was when I was when I was younger um, and in general um, I am so attuned to American ways and distinctly American traits that I think were shaped in history and that shaped me without realizing it and that I could mm. only really start to realize after living in Europe for more than a few years. Hmm. And so all of this is um, kind of changing my mind in the sense of assessing my home country differently in a way that 
I don't think I would have got to do if I'd spent my entire life in the United States. That's the one I'm going to stick with. Again, I think this is, you know, the music is just a part of it. It's kind of waking up to the power of the historical for- forces that shaped a person uh, mm-hmm. is, is, my, is my experience of, of this, like realizing after some years in Europe that, oh yeah, I am American after all. And here's, <laughs> here's what exactly that means. And here's what I couldn't see before. And so, yeah, that's me changing my mind about myself, about who mm-hmm. I am. Right. Because mm-hmm. when I was younger, I just, I was, you know, such a Europhile and, <laughs> you know, I only wanted to pay attention to European history. And if you tried to talk to me about, you know, the, the Pony Express or the gold rush or whatever, I'd be like, enough of this Mark Twain hoaxiness or hokiness, I should say. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so the ability to kind of um, to pay attention to these things in a way that I couldn't before mm-hmm. um, is a kind of, a kind of, yeah, a kind of self-knowledge that I think is really precious. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to me, um, and maybe this is only tangential to what you're talking about, but um, you can tell me what you think. It's it's interesting to me, as I've been talking to people, how many of these stories center on geographical relocation, Uh you know, like how much just changing your place in space changes how you think about things. Yeah. I personally have spent very little time outside the U.S., a few weeks here and there, but Whenever I'm abroad, I'm always running to the first McDonald's I see. And, you know, I don't, I don't seek out McDonald's in the U.S., but it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. in a place. Well, they're great for their bathrooms. Yeah, yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> mm. I just, I think I just want, you know, want something familiar. Um, yeah. And having it recontextualized that way, that way really changes the way I think about it. Yeah. That's obviously a very trivial example. No, absolutely. I mean, I mean, geography is essential in, in ways that are really hard to, fully appreciate i mean it's something really deep and i find that i really like my particular geographical positioning in paris right mm-hmm. it's like it's like you know yeah, pinpointing this spot in western europe out from which i can look at the world and assess the place i come from across the ocean think about all the countries that are neighboring us right here about Africa on the other side of the Mediterranean and all this stuff that like, in some sense, I'm always thinking about, Mm -hmm. and it would be totally a different set of thoughts if I were still back in California or uh, if I were in Tasmania or whatever, totally different. Um, And yeah, that's really a, a, a nice kind of jolt for the mind, even though it's obviously the same mind, right? Mm-hmm. To what extent yeah. do you think it's geography and to what extent do you think it's the people around you? Well, yeah, I mean... I, or maybe I, those I, two things can't be separated. I don't know. No, you know? but I, I mean, it, it's interesting because um person I see most is my wife, who's sitting mm-hmm. right across from me. <laughs> and, you know, especially since the pandemic uh, started, you know, we kind of retreated from the people you know? for sure, for um, sure. i mean i almost never see people I, I i have started teaching in person again but all last year i was you know i could have been anywhere so it's 
and you know i'm basically basically a homebody basically a you know a, a pretty reclusive uh and so it's not interactions with the people around me that make the place mm. what it is it's more of a kind of a feeling that one carries for yeah for the geography and the history of the place and the and this is something that i mean i really think it takes years to start to feel what it is um and it sounds almost mystical the way i'm talking right now but like i can think back to you know having been living in france for three years for four years and when i think about that i think i didn't I didn't know where I was back then. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I'll probably think the same about what I'm feeling now, 10 years from now, you know, but, but it takes a long time to start to get that sense of place, a really long time. This is kind of wacky, but I'm curious, have you heard of Harris syndrome? Are you familiar with that at all? With that's like when the Japanese girls faint. Yeah. Uh, when, yeah. yeah. And, and it's because they're so disappointed, usually, <laughs> right? Like, I they, think, I think that is, yeah. Jap Japanese yeah. people visit Paris and are so disappointed by how, I guess, how dirty and gross it can be that they, yeah, they right. end up, end I up mean, in the hospital. They're, they're disappointed by the reality of it, by the fact yeah. that it's, um, yeah, that it's got it's got dirt and trash and homeless people just like everywhere else. In fact, probably more than many places. Um, and and that doesn't fit with their fantasies. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I mean, I I find that this is kind of just wondering in our conversation, but why not? I mean, <laughs> I find it's actually one of the kind of most tiring things about living in Paris talking to people who don't live in Paris, especially well, to Americans who don't live in Paris, and immediately conjure images of leading a kind of sensual, paradisiac existence. Yeah. And it's like, why? Why would it be like that? And there are actually, there are a lot of Americans who are expats in Paris, most of them with trust funds, who themselves believe <laughs> that they're leading some 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 paradisiac existence, and I'm like, I'm like, can't you see? It's just the place. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's an interesting place, but um, you know, it it's it's still just a place. And I I I often say that you know that by their lights, I I I don't belong in France because I I stopped drinking. I don't eat cheese. I don't eat baguette. Um, you know, I, I don't. I don't care about fashion. So you know, there there are all sorts of things that, on this certain kind of very stereotypical stereotype stereotyping list of the reasons why one ought to be in Paris, I ought not be in Paris. <laughs> um, but still, but still, I mean, I, I, I was as I was saying, like you know, what I. What I like is something much more intangible, something that is just, you know, uh, that has to do with geography and history and that, that mm -hmm. can't, be, can't be bought in the store, so to speak, to speak, to speak in cliches. All right. I have three questions I like to close out the show with, just a broad worldview type questions, try to, you know, poke at ontology and epistemology. How do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? Um, so 
Justin, what is identity? Does everyone have an identity? How do you know your identity? What do you think? Yeah. These are huge questions. <laughs> I know, I know. I feel bad. I feel bad asking a philosophy professor these questions because okay. I know well, I'm gonna I, be here another hour now. So <laughs> I think I already kind of um kind of touched on it in my in my discussion of Leibniz and also of of, of standpoint epistemology, right? I am a sworn enemy of um, what's often called these days identitarianism. Mm -hmm. That is mm -hmm. the preoccupation with kind of defining ourselves um, in terms of our uh, ethno-racial, gender, uh, 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 et cetera, um, kind of data points the kind sure. of data points that make sense in some administrative contexts. Um, I see this as essentially reducing the human to a kind of um, uh, uh, data set that can be processed by a human resources department, right? Sure. And so, so I, I reject this utterly. Like, I mean, I yeah, I, there is a certain sense in which I recognize that I'm American, in which I recognize that I'm a male. Uh, uh, but um, but uh, I feel like those are relatively superficial. The first more superficial than the second, and they're so to speak not not even worthy of being brought up when we're having conversations about identity, right? Because what identity ultimately is, um, is something that um, uh, 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 kind of plots us uh, in relation to others and to the world, but that lies behind that plotting, right? That is mm. like I'm plotted in the world as an American, for example, or as a or as a, a, a male. Uh, but um, you know, there's something that is prior to that that ha that's that's being plotted, and that's the thing that bears my identity, right? So it's it's ultimately a metaphysical question, and and. And I'm with Leibniz. <laughs> For sure. Again. For sure. <laughs> we talked about this a lot, but I'm going to go on to it. You can add any thoughts you want. Mm -hmm. um, what is human nature? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all different? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? Yeah, um, uh, a bit of both. It depends on the context. It depends on what you're looking for. It depends on the level you're, you're investigating at. Um, Again, I think that uh, a certain dogma has arisen over the past uh, years that um, that neglects the um, the universal dimensions mm -hmm. of human experience. I'm more at home with those kind of broad and ambitious approaches to human the variety of human cultures, for example, that see different human cultures as realizing patterns within a fairly limited range of possible patterns. Mm -hmm. um, so human nature then is something that, uh, you know, is just whatever you can identify as present across, or, uh, across all of these different kind of variations on the pattern. 
And yeah, it's a real thing, but it's going to be articulated with different vocabularies and different contexts. And finally, what is truth? How do you know truth? How do you know you found truth? What do you think? Well, let's see. I don't have a... I have to, I have to talk like a professional philosopher here and, <laughs> and say that I don't have yet um, a viable theory of truth, right? Um, working on it, though. <laughs> I'm work- I, I don't think I'm working on it. I probably never will have one. Yeah. Uh, it's not it's not a, the topic that that excites me most sure um i can i can recite the you know the um correspondence theory of truth versus the coherence theory of truth and all of that stuff that i learned in grad school it seems to me that you know the there's a mundane sense in which truth is some kind of relation between things we say and the way the world is that's the so-called correspondence theory of truth Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounds kind of right, but I think in <laughs> most contexts, it's not what people really mean when they say that they're on a quest for truth, uh, or, you know, that they believe in the truth or something like that. I think usually when we talk about that, there's some kind of more, let's say moral or reverential attitude that's, that's in play. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. All right. Well, Justin, it really has been fun talking to you. Thank you so yeah. much. For on. Yeah. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. 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 Thanks for before having me. Before we go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we go, you want to tell people one more time where they can find you, where they can find your stuff? Yeah. Let's see. Okay. My name is Justin E.H. Smith without the E.H. It's not, um, it's not me. And uh, I have a sub stack. Uh, that a lot of people like to read um, that's called The Internet, Justin E.H. Smith.substack.com, I think. Uh, and I also have a podcast uh, through The Point magazine uh, called What is X? And that's just now getting started. Uh, and I think those two are like, you know, once you've accessed me through those two nodes, you can figure out the rest. For sure. All right. Well, this has been Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. You can email the show at changedmymindpod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington or at my website, luketharrington.com. I am human. And I think that nothing human is foreign to me. I've been haunted <laughs> by that line ever since uh, ever since Justin quoted it. Um, it's in his book, which I read before the interview, and I think he quoted it at least once in the interview, and it's just really stuck in my mind. Um, of course, this is a line that's been around for thousands of years, and people are still quoting it, so obviously... I'm not the only one, um, but I don't think I'd encountered it before uh, interacting with Justin. Um, but it's really stuck with me since. Um, originally, obviously, it came from the play Hewton Timoranos, uh, which someone is going to tell me if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but uh, uh, it's Greek and my Greek is not good. So uh, Hewton Timoranos by Terence.
our, our, our guy, Terrence, um, <laughs> he's like Cher. He doesn't have a last name. No, he was, um, uh, a Roman playwright. Um, and of course he, um, before being a, a playwright, he was a slave, uh, kind of worked his way up from slavery and became kind of this famous writer for the stage. Um, so when Terrence says, you know, nothing human is foreign to me, you can really take him seriously, right? He's been at the bottom and he's been at the top. Um, and, you know, if he tells us there's a certain universality to humanity, we should probably take him seriously about that. Um, there's a lot of ways to take that line, obviously, right? I think there's there's a very optimistic, almost utopian way to take it of like, we can all understand each other, right? We're not that far apart. Um, and I think by Angelou, I like to quote it in that sense. Um, but there's also kind of the cynical pessimistic way of taking it also, which is any one of us is perfectly capable of doing the things that the worst of humanity has done, right? We're all capable of great good but we're all capable of great evil as well um and i wonder if there might be some benefit to uh meditating on that a little bit pondering that a little bit i've made no secret on this show of my absolute disdain uh for donald trump <laughs> i do think he has degraded uh democracy and the discourse in america in ways that will be extremely difficult, if not impossible to recover from. Um, but at my most honest moments, I also sort of wonder if at least some of my disdain for the Donald comes from the fact that I see so much of myself in him. You know, I'm just as desperate for people's attention. I'm just as scared that my enormous ego is not an accurate reflection of myself. <laughs> I'm just as vain, you know, I'm just as prone to poke at bears just to amuse myself, you know? Um, am I saying that I literally am Donald Trump? I mean, maybe if that'll get me my own reality TV show. Um, but no, I just, I think there's value in thinking about stuff like that and considering that possibility. Um, there's value in acknowledging that whatever you hate about other people is very likely present in you. Um, and if you want to change the world, you know, you have to start within. Anyway, that's it for this week. Um, if you like the show, if you like what I'm doing on the show, Obviously, you can become a Patreon supporter. Um, for $3 a month, you get early access to the episodes. For $5 a month, you get VIP access to our content strategy meetings and production credit. Um, so if that interests you and if you want to support my show, please go to patreon.com slash change my mind. Um, if that does not interest you, but you want to support the show anyway, please log on to Apple Podcasts, write a review, tell the world why I'm awesome. Uh, I would really appreciate it. 
One more thing while I'm thinking of it, um, I have a Substack newsletter, which is free. And if you sign up for it, you get immediate free access to both of my books in ebook form. Um, so I wrote one horror novel, it's called Ophelia Alive. And I wrote one nonfiction book called Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Bemused, and Hopefully Informed. I don't imagine there's a ton of overlap for the audiences for those two books. Uh, but if you are in that overlap, if you're in the center of that Venn diagram, have I got a deal for you. You can read both of them for free. Plus, you will get my free newsletter uh, in which I share my thoughts on horror fiction and musicals and the uh, publishing industry and whatever else. You'll get that in your email inbox uh, once a month or so. Um, so go to luketharrington.substack.com and sign up for my newsletter to read both those books for free. Change My Mind is produced by Tamar Harrington. She is our lone producer because she is our top supporter. To become a producer, support the Patreon. Our executive producer is Blake Collier, and our editor is Jonathan Clausen, and we are presented by Raven Creek Social Club. I'm Lucy Harrington. Thank you for listening to Change My Mind, and please don't be afraid to change your mind. Thank you.